Today we're starting a new series called The Storyteller, uh, and it's going to be all about Jesus and his parables. I thought it was about time to hop into the New Testament church. Uh, we did a series in Daniel. It was, it was a heavy read through the book of Daniel. We did a, a, a summer in the Psalms. We just concluded a series about the tabernacle and the old covenant. And I thought, man, I just need to hear Jesus talk. I just need to hear his words. I need, I need some New Testament stuff. Is anybody ready for the New Testament to move on to the New Testament? All right. So we're going to start a series called the storyteller. And the reason it's called the storyteller is because Jesus was a masterful storyteller. He was, he knew the power of storytelling. It wasn't just an intellectual exercise that he was giving people, but he was captivating hearts and he was captivating people's emotions and, and he was wrapping people up into the ideas of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus understood the power behind storytelling. I remember I went to a conference when I was in middle school or high school and uh, I watched as the speaker told his story. He gave his testimony from the stage and it was so moving that hundreds of people came to know the Lord that day. They all walked up to the altar and gave Jesus their heart because the power of his story captivated their hearts. It's the power of storytelling. I watched a movie a couple of years ago and it came out in uh, 2018 and it's called Beautiful Boy. I don't know if anybody's ever seen this movie before, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a story about a father who's fighting for his, his son who's battling drug addiction. Now I've had all these, you know, assumptions and, and, and thinking surrounding drug addiction and stuff. But when you watch a story about a father who loves his son, he's losing his son to drug addiction and he's fighting for his son, it begins to change your mind about some things. You begin to empathize. It captures your heart and it's the power of storytelling. Stories have shaped cultures for generations. From ancient times, people would tell stories to instill virtues into younger generations and convey important messages that lasted lifetimes. One of the more recent examples of a powerful and influential story was a book written in 1852 that I'm sure most of you are aware of called Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was the first widely read political novel in the U.S. and it was the first work of fiction that openly addressed the cruelty of slavery and human exploitation. It became one of the most popular books of the century and it's credited with radically altering perception of slavery and many voters noted its influence on the abolition movement. But it told the story of slavery through the eyes of the enslaved and it called its readers to empathize with other human beings. It was a story that captured a generation's heart, that captured a generation and had them begin to think differently. Uh, even more recently, a book called To Kill a Mockingbird was published. Maybe uh, if you're like me, you read this as a freshman in high school. Uh, it was published during the Civil Rights Movement and told the story of racial inequality in the Deep South during Jim Crow. The book won the Pulitzer Prize and its story was so influential, it impacted a generation. That is the power of storytelling. Jesus understood the power of storytelling, but why did Jesus use stories? Because you think this, here comes God in the flesh. Jesus is, is, is ushering in the kingdom of heaven and he's teaching people what God is like. He's showing people what God acts like, what he looks like, what he cares about. You would think as a theological template or a theological model that Jesus would act a little bit more like the Ten Commandments. Like, here's what you do, 
And here's what you don't do. If you really want to align yourself with God and align yourself with correct theology, you're going to do these things and you're not going to do these things. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't give his listeners a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he begins to tell a story. Why? The first reason why, why did Jesus use stories, was to conceal truth, to conceal truth for only those with ears to hear. This is surprising for some people because Jesus didn't tell a story to dumb it down to an audience, right? He didn't tell a story to make it plain to people and to say, let me, let me explain it like this. Let me break it down for you. No, Jesus actually told stories to conceal truth about the kingdom of heaven for those with ears to hear and eyes to see. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 16 says, his disciples came and asked him because they had the same question that you and I ask. Jesus, why do you use parables when you talk to people? He replied, well, you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have, it will be taken away from them. This is why I use parables. Jesus told stories not to make his message plain and clear. He told stories to reserve his message for those with open minds to receive the kingdom of God into their hearts. His messages were also concealed to, to, um, to hide that there were people that were after Jesus. That as he began his ministry, there were Pharisees and there were religious leaders that sought to kill him. And Jesus told stories to conceal kingdom truth from those people in order to buy him more time to continue doing the work of ministry before he went to the cross because he knew people were after him. So he told stories that only people with open minds, only people with open hearts and ears to hear and eyes to see would be able to understand the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus told stories to conceal truth for people with eyes to see and ears to hear. So church, my question for you is, do you have ears to hear this morning? Do you have eyes to see the story that Jesus wants to tell you today? The second reason that Jesus told stories, and this is what we're going to kind of camp out in for for this series, is Jesus told stories to reveal what the culture of heaven was like. To To reveal what it feels like. This is kind of what it's like, you know, every, every kingdom has its own culture. It has its own language. It has its own vibe. It has its own DNA. It has its own value system. Think about when you go to the Apple store compared to when you go to your grandmother's house. Both have very different vibes. One is professional and kept clean. The other, maybe not so much. And, and one, in one place, they're always asking if they can help you. And the other place, the, the, somebody's asking if you can help them. It's, it's, I, I, I'm not saying which is which. I love my grandma, by the way. She's sitting right in the front row, so she's, she's, she's judging me right now. <laughs> she has a very clean house, by the way, and I love to help my grandmother. But I'm just saying there's a different feel in each of these kingdoms. Think about when you go to the bowling alley versus when you step into the Grant County Courthouse. What you're experiencing when you walk into these places is the culture of that place is the culture of the environment the culture of that kingdom and jesus is saying i'm going to tell you what the kingdom of god is like what it feels like what what you experience when you go to the king when you when you're experiencing the kingdom of god this is what it's like you know my wife is romanian 
Her mother uh, was born in Romania, and her grandmother obviously was born in Romania. And so anytime I go to visit her grandmother's house in Seattle, uh, I experience a very different culture. It's a different kingdom there. There's different language. There's a different language. They, don't, they only speak in Romanian there. So I'm just this white guy who's left out of everything. And I, I don't know what's going on, but they speak a different language. There's different smells. It smells like garlic and her- herbs and spices all the time and cabbage and meat and potatoes. And, 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 uh, and I get this different feel when I'm there. It's a different experience when I, when I enter that culture. And I remember the first time that I visited Christina's grandmother's house after we got married. Uh, you know, uh, I, uh, we, we got married and uh, we went on a three-week honeymoon to Italy. It was awesome. And I ate a ton of pasta and pizza. And my wife is a great cook, so I put on some pounds, church. I came back from the honeymoon with like 10 extra pounds. And, and you know, in the, in the months that, that followed our marriage, my wife is just such a great cook. And I just began, you know, to put on some pounds. And so we go to visit her grandmother's house. And I step in through the door. And her grandmother sees us. And she says something in Romanian. And my wife begins to chuckle. And I said, what did she say? And my wife's still laughing. She says, my grandmother says that I'm a good wife because you're bigger and I'm not. And I was like, did your, did your grandma just call me fat? She goes, yeah, I, I think so. But that is what that kingdom values. And that culture, they value a woman who cooks for her husband and stays in shape. Ladies, don't get mad at me. I didn't say this. It was her grandmother that said this, okay? I appreciate that my wife is a great cook, and I appreciate that she, she's attractive. I appreciate it, but you know what? It, they just have different values. There's a different value system in that culture, and I was stepping in to a kingdom that I wasn't familiar with. It felt different, and it, I experienced different things. Jesus told stories to give us a feeling of what heaven's culture is like and what matters to God. He talked about lost things. He talked about hurting people. Not hurting people, but, you know, people that were hurting. He talked about the condition of people's hearts. He talked about gifts and expectations of divine stewardship. He talked about radical forgiveness that resulted in parties for those who come to God. And he conceptualized these topics instead of legalizing them with rules and checklists. See, he knew that humanity has a tendency to legalize the things of God. That, that if, he, if he were to legalize what the kingdom of heaven was like, that there would be no room for error. And you know, the Pharisees did this all the time. Jesus came and he said, hey, listen, I have made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? He was trying to tell us, by giving us a Sabbath, he was saying, this day is for you. It's for you to interact with God. It's for you to enjoy God's creation, for you to rest, for you to be filled up by God's presence. The Sabbath was made for you, not man for the Sabbath, but the Pharisees, they made all these rules and checklists, and here's what you can do on the Sabbath, and here's what you can't do on the Sabbath, and they legalized it. And Jesus is telling stories to move us away, to throw us off the scent of our endless checklists and still leave us completely immersed in the aroma of his kingdom. You know, when you tell a story to somebody, they're all, every person in the room is going to pick up something different from it. In the case of the story that we're going to read today, there's a father and his two sons. And some people in the room, some listeners, in the, and when Jesus was telling the story, they were going to identify more with the father. 
Some listeners were going to identify more with the son, the youngest son, and some were going to identify with the older brother. And, and so everybody, when they hear a story, they, they pick up on different facets. They pick, on, they pick up on different things about that story, and that was okay for Jesus. He, he put the kingdom of God in, in this story, and he said, I'm going now to allow God, I'm going to allow you to, to seek out the truth. And I'm going to allow this story to minister to your heart and speak to you in the way that God wants to speak to you. Jesus did this. He was okay with that. And so we're going to talk about some stories today that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, there's a series of three stories. There's three stories that all revolve around the same topic. Things that are lost... And then are found. And each story has a celebration. At the, at, when, they, when that person finds the thing that was lost, there's a celebration that happens. And Jesus, being a master storyteller, was probably following a rule of three that storytellers use. And we see this all the time in modern day folklore and folk tales. Think about Cinderella and her two stepsisters. There's three characters there. Think about the three little pigs. There's always a, a pattern of three. In the story of the Good Samaritan, there's three men that stop by the road for the man, right? And in the story that we're about to read, there's a father and his two sons. There's three characters. Jesus, he tells three stories of things that are lost and that are found. And he's following a, a storytelling pattern. <coughs> but before we read them, something very important to note is who Jesus is talking to. The audience that is listening to Jesus tell these stories. It's seen right in the first couple verses. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who's Jesus telling the story to? Who's listening? He's got sinners and tax collectors, and he's got religious leaders. Pharisees. He's sitting at the table and eating with sinners and tax collectors while religious elite criticize his actions. But you know what? There's something so appealing about Jesus. And, and church, I hope you can relate to this. Is we, Jesus likes to celebrate. We have a God. We serve a God who likes to celebrate. Jesus can be seen all throughout scripture, not meeting people at the altar, but meeting people at a table. And he's looking across the table at people's eyes and he celebrates with people. And he gets to know, but we, we have a God who celebrates and, and meets people at the table. The table was a central place for community. It was where people had fellowship and intimacy. They didn't have TVs or football games or video games. If you wanted to get to, to get together with somebody or get to know somebody, you sat around the table with them. And you got to know them around a table. It was the, it was the first century equivalent of the most intimate place to be with somebody. Your closest circle. Your closest group of friends. That one or two best friends that you have. Those are the people at your table. And Jesus was always bringing those on the outside into his closest circle. And sitting around the table with them. And he was indiscriminate about his dining companions. He, he sat with Pharisees. Think of Nicodemus who came and asked, how do I be born again? He sat with tax collectors and sinners and upscale family members like Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. He invites everyone to sit at the table and celebrate with him. So the first two stories, 
that are in Luke 15 are, are short and they follow the same pattern. In the first story, there's a shepherd who has, and this is Luke 15, 3 through 7, there's a shepherd who has 100 sheep and he notices that one is missing. So he leaves the 99 to find the one and upon finding the one, he puts the sheep over his shoulders and he skips back to home rejoicing and he calls his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me. Let's celebrate because I found my lost sheep. And he says that in the same way, heaven rejoices over the one sinner who repents and over the 99 who don't need to repent. He's talking about that, that there's a celebration that happens when the lost come to know God. First, what should stand out to the listener when they're hearing this parable about a shepherd with a hundred sheep is, wow, I'm surprised that the shepherd even noticed that one was missing. He's got a hundred sheep. The typical person back in the day had about 20 to a hundred sheep. So if you had a hundred sheep, you were doing pretty well for yourself. But this shepherd notices when the one is gone. Jesus is saying that we have a God who notices who's not in the room. We know, he notices when someone is missing and he urgently searches to find whoever's lost. Church, I hope that we can learn to model this. I hope that we can learn to model the culture of the kingdom of heaven and that we have a church that has a culture that urgently searches for the lost. Jesus, when talking about a culture of heaven, I've got three things for you today. And again, this is not to be a checklist. These aren't the only three things that we can see in these parables, but this is a starting point for us today. But I think one important message that we need to take away from these stories, from these parables, is number one, the culture of heaven urgently searches for the lost. A culture of heaven urgently searches for the lost. The second thing that a listener would be, that would, they would be shocked to hear as they were hearing the story is, wow, what a reckless shepherd to leave the 99 unattended to go find the one that was lost. Who would do that? That's crazy. Jesus is saying we have a shepherd who urgently, who frantically searches for anyone who is lost. And he rejoices over finding the one who is lost. They value, Jesus is revealing the culture of heaven values the lost so much that it's willing to do something radical in order to find them. Do you know Jesus did that for you? He did something radical. He died for you. He died on the cross for you so that he could find you, so that you could come to God. Jesus died for you so that you could come home. I think that Jesus might have been subtly giving the Pharisees a jab in this story too. I think he might have subtly been slipping something in here that the Pharisees would have caught up on because the Pharisees had the word of God memorized. They were very familiar with scripture. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, God tells the prophet Ezekiel to prophesy against the religious leaders of Israel and tell them that they are terrible shepherds and I'm taking their sheep away from them because they failed to feed their sheep. They failed to protect them. They failed to go out and find those that are lost. It's a scolding, it's a scalding rebuke that the Lord gives Ezekiel to give to the leaders of Israel. And I think Jesus might have been hinting at this because in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, it says this, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. In verse 16, it says, I will search for my lost ones who strayed away and I will bring them safely home again. 
I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. Jesus knew who was listening. He knew who he was talking to. He was talking to the shepherds of Israel. And then the shepherd places the sheep on his shoulders and he invites the neighbors and the friends to come and celebrate with him for finding the lost sheep. And Jesus says, in the same way, heaven rejoices over the one sinner who repents and the 99 who don't need to. See, this, this celebration, there's a feast implied here. Anytime somebody had a celebration, there was a, there was a feast that happened. There was people sitting around a table and eating together. And so Jesus is saying, hey, when we find those who are far from God and they, they come back to God, we celebrate. What's Jesus doing as he's telling this story? He's sitting around a table with those who came home, sinners and tax collectors, and he's celebrating with them. He's modeling in that moment what it looks like to celebrate when those people come home, when the lost are found. The main message that Jesus is conveying in all three of these stories is the response that we are to have when a broken person comes to God. This is the whole reason that Jesus began to tell these stories is because the religious leaders were criticizing Jesus, celebrating with this, these people. He, they were criticizing Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so that was the catalyst for these three stories. The crux of these three parables are all about our response that we have when the lost are found. When broken people come to know God, we're to celebrate The next story that Jesus tells is in verse 8 through 10. It's the story of the lost coin. And it gets a little bit more urgent because instead of one missing out of 100, it's now one coin out of 10. And one coin would have been the equivalent of uh, a day's wage. And so there's this woman who loses one coin, about a day's wage uh, worth of money. And she searches her house. She sweeps it clean and she lights a lamp and she finds the coin. And when she finds the coin, she does the same thing. She calls her friends and her neighbors together and they throw a big party because she lost her coin. That's a little overkill, don't you think? If you and I found a coin, probably wouldn't call anybody and let them know. But Jesus is saying, this is the response that we have. This is the culture of heaven. The culture of heaven celebrates when the lost are found. And then he goes, And he tells this last story. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. It's the story of the father and his two sons. A lot of people hear this story as the story of the prodigal son. But when you say it like that, it makes the story all about the youngest son. And this story is not necessarily about the youngest son. It's about the response of the father and the older brother to the youngest son. So let's read this story. I think it begins in verse 11. Luke 15, 11. Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. Now let's stop right there. This would have been a setup. Jesus is setting something up right here, but he's about to throw a curveball because anytime a religious leader heard the phrase, a man with two sons, they would have been immediately primed to listen to the story and contrast the two, the two sons. And they would have a preference or they would lean more towards the younger son, the younger of the two sons as being the righteous of the two sons. Why? Who else had two sons? Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel was the youngest and he was the, what was that? Abel was the youngest. 
Yes, Cain and Abel. Abel was the youngest. And Abel was the one considered righteous because he brought an offering that was acceptable to God. Who else had two sons? Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was the younger of the two. And he was the child of promise. And he was the one that God gave favor to. Isaac had two sons. Esau and Jacob. Jacob was the youngest. He ruled over his older brother and was given the birthright and, and he was, and, and he found favor with God. He was considered righteous because of his faith. Uh, let's see. Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the younger of the two sons were blessed by Jacob. David was the youngest son out of seven brothers and he had two sons with Bathsheba. Uh, and the younger of the two sons was Solomon, who ruled in the favor of God. It was always the youngest son, the youngest son that the Pharisees and the religious leaders, uh, that they would, they would lean towards, they would give preference to. And so as Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, they'd automatically think, all right, let's pay attention to this younger brother, because he's probably going to be the one that God wants us to model our faith after, just like we've been reading about in scripture all this time. And then Jesus throws a curveball. In verse 12, he says, The younger son said to his father, Father, give me a share of my estate. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The Pharisees are thinking, What? What a terrible son. I mean, for a son to ask for his inheritance before the father gave it was to walk up to the father. And many of you have heard this before. It's to say, Father, I wish you were dead. I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. Just give me what you owe me so I can go and not belong to this family anymore. It was a stab in the heart to the father. And what's even more surprising is the recklessness of the father. You know what the father says? Okay. Why would the father do that? I mean, this son is probably in his teens. He's probably maybe in his early 20s. He's a young guy. He's going to go ruin his life. The father knows this, but the father, he doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do that for you. What are you talking? He says, yes, I'll let you do that. We have a God who gives you freedom to choose him. He's not forcing you into a relationship with him. He's not forcing you to love him. He wants to enter into a mutual relationship. He He wants you to say yes to him, just like he says yes to you over and over again. And so he gives the son his share. And by the way, he not only gave his youngest the inheritance, but according to Jewish law, the father would have given the eldest son a two-thirds portion. So if a father had two sons, the inheritance would be broken up into three parts, and the oldest son would get a double portion. They get two of those parts. So everybody got rich on the farm that day. Everybody except the father, who is now devastated because his youngest son has wandered off with his inheritance and doesn't want him anymore. Doesn't want to be a part of the family. Spat in his face. Let's continue reading verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything. Jesus is saying, the short of the story is, he spent everything. <laughs> there was a severe famine. And that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed for the, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. In short, this young guy went off to Vegas 
and he spent everything in Vegas. On his newly acquired fortune, everything was spent on wild and reckless living. And then a famine comes, and he has no choice but to work with unclean, filthy pigs. For a Jew, this would have been detestable. At this point, if you're a Pharisee, you're listening to the story, you're just, your hands are over your eyes, and you're just like, can this get any worse? This kid, he spits in his father's face. He takes his inheritance. He, he goes, he squanders it on, on worldly living. And now he's feeding pigs. This is just the worst. But the Pharisees probably would have been like, finally, he's getting what he deserves. Right? He's, he's, he's eating pig food. That's where he belongs. All right, Jesus, this story's getting better. Keep telling it. Go ahead. But here's the turning point. The next verse says, when he came to his senses. Some translation says, when he came to himself or he realized what he had done, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. When he came to his senses, church, this is what repentance looks like. The word repent means to turn away from sin. In other words, if God's over here, you're walking this direction, you're, you're living in the ways of the world, you're doing what you want, and there's a point in your life where you realize there's this emptiness in my heart. This isn't, this isn't filling me. I need more. That moment when you turn around and you face the Father and you stop walking towards sin, that's repentance. It's not when you get back to the Father. It's when you decide in your heart that what I'm doing is sin and I'm turning around and I'm starting my way back home. That's what repentance looks like. And so this young man, he comes to his senses and he realizes what he does and he begins to rehearse this speech over and over, all the way home, on the walk home. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer to be called your son. Father, make me a servant, make me a slave. And he's just rehearsing this. This is what I'm gonna say to my father. He's probably nervous. He's probably terrified, both of his father and his older brother, because of what he did. I mean, he gave them the finger as he walked out the door. He spent his, the fortune, this family's fortune on wild living. He's probably terrified, and he's got this speech rehearsed. And the Pharisees at this point, they're thinking, oh, he'd be lucky to be his father's slave. I wouldn't even take him back. I wouldn't even give him that chance. This is just, this kid is detestable. He's the worst. But let's keep reading. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned. And he begins to tell him the speech that he's been rehearsing. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer to be, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father says, hold that thought. Don't say anymore. Hey guys, bring the ring and the robe. Get the sandals and put it on his feet. Let's kill the fatted calf. This son of mine was dead and he's alive. He's lost and is found. Let's have a party. This kid didn't even get a chance to finish this speech that he'd been rehearsing all the way home. And his father says, hold that thought. Before you suggest being my slave, I'm going to make you my son. You're going to, you're going to come back into the house and I'm going to reestablish you as my son. 
Get the ring and the robe. Get the sandals. Let's make this kid, let's give him the place of honor. Let's put him right beside me at the banquet table. And now the Pharisees, as they're listening to the story, they start to lose it. What a reckless and undignified father. First, first elderly men in the first century, they did not run after their sons. Because to run after somebody, you'd have to hike up your ancient toga. And you got to reveal your legs. And you got you to gotta kind of do this undignified prance all the way to that person. It, no elderly man in the first century did this. But this, elder, this father is undignified. He doesn't care what people think. All he wants is his son back. And guess what the scripture says? It says that while he was a long way off, meaning that the father was standing there for who knows how long, every night, every morning, looking at the horizon, waiting to see the silhouette of somebody come home. Mind you, there was a famine in the land, and the father, I'm sure, was he, he was probably certain that his son was dead. There is no way my son made it through that famine. I don't know where he is, but he's looking at the hills every morning, every evening, waiting for his son, and he sees the silhouette of his son coming to him, and he takes off running, and he gets to his son. He wraps his arms around him and kisses him, brings the ring and the robe you know, typically an estranged son would come back home and they'd have to plead with their father before the father allowed them to enter back into the home and gave them mercy, but not this father. This father doesn't even give the son the chance to finish what he was going to say. He says, hey, I, you're my son and you came home. The second thing that Jesus, I think, wants us to learn from this story is that a culture of heaven values forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. And there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, oftentimes when we, like, when we encounter people at church or when we encounter people in our families, you know, <clears throat> we'll say, I forgive you, but I still don't trust you. And I'm still not going to allow you access, the same access into my life that you had before because you did this to me. So I, yes, I forgive you, but, you're, but it's never going to be the same. And we think that's what God says about us. That he forgives us, but it's never going to be the same. He forgives us, but I've, you know, in the back of his mind, he knows what I've done. He's always going to hold it against me. No. What did the father do? He forgives his son, but then he reconciles him. Meaning he put his son back in his original place as if nothing had ever happened. Scripture says that when you're forgiven, he remembers your sin no more. He cast it as far as the east is from the west, meaning that it's gone. It's forgotten. He has is, he is not only covered it up, but he's erased it, church. The blood of Jesus has erased your sin. And so when you come to Jesus and when you come back home and when you realize what you've done and you do an about face and you turn towards God, God says, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to make you my son and my daughter as if nothing had ever happened. Come and enter into my joy. Be a part of the family. Celebrate with me. Church, we need to get this right. Because the church of God has a hard time forgiving, number one, but has an even harder time with reconciliation. Because we'll say with our mouth that we forgive someone, but in our hearts there's this, oh, okay, I don't, I don't fully trust you. And don't get me wrong, church, sometimes it's healthy to set up boundaries. When somebody hurts you, Sometimes it's appropriate to set up boundaries and say, hey, listen, I, it's going to take some time for me to rebuild trust with you. And that happens. It's, that's, that's, that's a real thing. But the condition of our heart should be that of not only do I forgive you, 
but I am going to put my faith in the fact that you are a new creation. I'm going to put my faith in the fact that God has fully redeemed you and I see your full worth. You are no lesser to me than you were before. That's extreme. That's scandalous. That's crazy to have that kind of grace over somebody, especially considering the hurt and the pain that some people in this room have experienced from their mothers, from their fathers, from their best friends, from their spouses. Some of you have, in, have encountered betrayal from your spouse. Some of you in, uh, have encountered abuse from your fathers. And your mind is, is, is grieved, your heart is grieved, and you don't know what this kind of grace looks like. You don't know what this kind of forgiveness looks like. Jesus isn't just trying to give us some lofty, expectation of the kingdom of heaven and say, isn't this nice? This is what heaven looks like. Yeah, I'm going to tell you what it's like, but you're not actually going to get there. You know, Jesus isn't trying to give us some lofty idea of what the kingdom of heaven is like so that we, we can not attain it. No, Jesus is saying, this is the culture that we should be living. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a real prayer, church. Jesus is saying, this is what the culture of heaven looks like. It values forgiveness and reconciliation so much that it looks undignified, and it looks scandalous, and it looks crazy to the rest of the world. And it might include a little bit more heartbreak on your part, but you're doing what God has called you to do by extending that hand of forgiveness one more time. Perhaps you've been apart from God for a while. Maybe you are the youngest son. And you came to church today with reservations and with fear about God, what God wants to say to you. And here's what God says to you. Get the ring and the robe and the sandals and put it on his feet. My son, my daughter, who is lost, is found. They were dead, but they're alive. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. He's God the Father does not condemn you. He doesn't judge you. And I don't want to represent the Father. If, if I represent the Father, if I represent Jesus, what would that look like if people look at my life and they see judgment? They see condemnation. They see a stiff arm. Yeah, okay, you can come to church, but don't get too close. Yeah, yeah, I know what you've done. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm going to put a smile on my face. How you doing? I haven't seen you forever. Yeah, you, oh, you're sitting on that side of the room? I'm going to sit on this side of the room. Church, we can't do that. In order to model what the kingdom of heaven looks like, we have to truly know what it means to forgive and to reconcile with one another. Every person in this room who said yes to Jesus was once the youngest son. And we would have been lucky to be a slave for God. But instead, he made you a son and he made you a daughter. He gave you all of heaven's resources and heaven threw a party because you came home. And so now... You were once the youngest son. Now you have the opportunity to decide, are you going to react like the father or are you going to react like the oldest son? How did the oldest son react? Let's keep reading. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? And get this, this is important. Your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Remember the shepherd who notices when one's missing? 
the father is having this party with his youngest son. He looks around the room and he realizes, hey, wait, one of my sons is missing. Where's my oldest son? So he goes out and he urgently searches for his oldest son. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you. Did God ask for a slave? Did he want a slave? No, he wanted a son. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders and you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice the servant said, hey, this brother of yours, your brother's home. And he looks and he says, this son of yours, he's not my brother, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed a fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, You've always been with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. The oldest brother never left the father's side, but in reality, he was the one who was lost. He thought that mere proximity to his father or activity for God was... He he didn't know that proximity and activity for God was not the same thing as knowing the father intimately through relationship. He saw the father as a taskmaster who used his services rather than a gracious and loving dad who wants to show compassion to all. And here's where Jesus closes the book. He ends the story right here. He doesn't tell them what happens to the older brother, whether or not the older brother reconciled with his father and comes in and joins the party or whether he continued to be indignant. Because Jesus wanted the Pharisees who's, who are listening to this story, he wants the Pharisees to choose what happens next. The ball is in your court, guys. What are you going to do? Are you going to join me in celebrating the tax collectors and sinners who have come to God? Or are you going to remain stubborn and indignant? Are you going to throw a fit or are you going to throw a party? What are you going to do? The third thing that Jesus is saying in these stories is that a culture of heaven throws parties we we have a party culture church come on yeah that's right come on we have a party culture we're supposed to throw parties come on amen pastor that's a good word that's a good word pastor i'm good thing i'm smarter than those pharisees i show love and acceptance to all people just like jesus would want do you, though? The truth, yeah, mom says, where's the party then? The truth is, we all have an older brother inside of us. We all have an older brother inside of us. You know that a tax collector was the most hated person in Jesus' time. They were unsavable. They were the unsavable heathens. They were Jews hired by Rome who was the enemy, to unfairly tax their Jewish neighbors to help Rome further persecute and rule over the Jews. They were scumbags, traitors. They, they, they didn't believe in, in the Jewish people or the Jewish ways. And it wasn't just the religious elite who couldn't stand them. Everyone couldn't stand the tax collectors. They were those people, whoever those people are. Imagine an IRS agent who cheats widows, overcharges, and extorts small businesses in order to pocket the excess and sell, secret ter- uh, and sell secrets to terrorists on the side. That's who the tax collectors were. 
They were the ultimate outsiders. And the Pharisees and scribes, on, on the other hand, would have been people that you would have really liked. We would have really liked the Pharisees and the scribes. They had high theological training. These guys literally memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament. Have you ever read the book of Numbers? Let alone try to memorize the book of Numbers. These guys memorized it. And while the Pharisees had God's word committed to memory, the scribes were elevated Pharisees who hand-wrote copies of these memorized scriptures. See, Pharisees and scribes were the kind of people on guest lists. Tax collectors and sinners were on watch lists. The former would be candidates being interviewed for your local HOA. And the latter would be suspects being interviewed by the FBI. We tend to look down on the Pharisees now, but in that day, you'd probably pull over and check on them if they were broken down on the side of the road. But you'd probably lock your doors at a red light if a tax collector was on the adjacent sidewalk. Come on, who are those people for you today? Every one of us has those people. It's easier to hate someone you're not actually looking at from across the table. Let me say that again. It's easy to hate someone that you're not looking at from across the table. That's why social media is such a hotbed for vicious, verbal, cruel assaults. Because we have these conversations with people and we go off on one another and eventually we just crumple up that person's value and, that's, and their worth into a one-word a one word definition for that person. Well, this person's ridiculous. This, I don't have to listen to, I don't have to, you know, they're the exception to the rule. I don't have to listen to what this person says because they're just a, they're just a Democrat. They're just a Republican. They're just black. They're just white. They're just Latino, Asian, liberal, conservative, wealthy, poor. They're just a nationalist. They're just immigrant. They're just a pro-lifer. They're just pro-choicer. They're just a redneck or a city slicker. They're Catholic or Protestant, Reformed or Baptist or Pentecostal. They're just a Jew. They're just a Muslim. They're just straight. They're just gay. These are the labels that we put on people. And we crumple up their identities into these one-word associations because we think that we're just throwing out the issue. Oh, I don't hate the person. I just hate what they stand for. But little do you know that you're actually throwing out the whole person. We throw away people themselves. And the difference between the father and the older brother is that the father refused to deny the younger son his God-given value, no matter what. Every person has been created in the image of God. And they can't escape the value that Jesus placed on their lives when he died for them. The father separated the boy's behavior from his worth, which created the potential for him to come home and begin living as his beloved son had always been. So here's the question for us this morning. Can I, ask yourself this this morning, can I separate someone's behavior from their worth? It's difficult. Because people... We get in conversations with people on Facebook, people that we're not sitting across the table from. We, we run into people at the store. They say something about whether or not we're wearing a mask or if we, if we are or aren't wearing a mask. Or, and and we, we just crumple up their identity into these one-word statements. But can you, can you separate someone's behavior from their worth? Because how they behave does not define how much they're worth. Somebody say amen. Amen. When we adopt the attitude of the older brother, we're making ourselves enemies against God's plan. 
Well, what's God's plan? It's to seek and save and love the lost. The words of the older brother aligned himself against that plan when he said, this son of yours. In other words, the older brother was doing what the younger brother did in the beginning. He was saying, I don't want to be a part of this family. This is, this is your son. He's not my brother. I don't want, to, I don't want any part in this. I can't, I can't love like that. I can't love like you, dad. I can't, I can't do what you're doing because I've just been treated unfairly. I need to get what's coming to me in order to love people better. God, give me what I deserve for being a good Christian and then I can love people better. (sighs) None of us want to admit it, but there's a little bit or there's a lot of bit of the older brother inside of us. And churches today, I think, are filled with older brothers, which is why younger brothers, sometimes they don't come home. Can you imagine what would have happened if the younger brother was greeted by his older brother before he met the father? Because we have people who come through the doors at church. Are they meeting the older brother first or are they meeting the father? People who are desperate, who are lost, who are at the end of their rope, who, who used every ounce of courage to get into the doors of a church because of the pain and the hurt that they've been through. Are they greeted by the father or are they greeted by the older brother? Do they experience the unconditional love of God that wants to celebrate them for coming home? Or do they experience judgment and a stiff arm? I believe that Jesus, the storyteller, He's inviting our church to stop throwing fits and start throwing parties. The culture of God's kingdom is a party culture. And I think that having a party culture is less about what we do and more about the way that we do everything. Sunday morning, the way that we do Sunday morning, is it a place where the lost feel welcomed? Small groups, are we providing a judgment-free atmosphere where people can share what's really going on in their life? Our interaction with people in our community, on social media, are we greeting people like the Father so that they want to come home? Notice that it was the, it was the, kindness, it was the kindness of the Father that even made the Son realize, you know what? My Father has servants who are treated better than this. And I know that if I go home, my father will be kind. The lost who are, who are away from God, in their heart they know that there's a God who's, who's seeking them. And they're just waiting for it to be confirmed in his people. They know that there's a God who's calling their name, who's calling after them. But when they come to church, they just want it to be confirmed by the people who are supposed to represent the father. Can we stand, church? Let's pray together. Father, loving, heavenly Father, you pursue us. You run after us. You chase us down. God, teach us to be like that. It's going to require some of us to learn how to be a little bit more unoffendable. A little bit more like you to where We allow hurt and pain to fall off so that we can truly embrace people.
Teach us how to be like that, God. I pray, Lord, if there's any pride, if there's any, anything in our hearts that, that have an idea against a certain group of people, and we keep those people away, help us think about what you would do, Jesus. If you were here, would you invite them to the table? Would you look them in the eye? Would you invite them to belong before they believe? Church, I pray that we would be a place where people can come as they are, but leave changed by the grace of Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Help us to separate people's behavior from their worth because what they do does not define their value and the price that you paid for every single one of us. We want to be more like that, God. Thank you for giving us these stories. Thank you for being the storyteller and inviting us into an idea of the kingdom of heaven that is so far beyond what we experience today in our culture. Help us to model that. Help us to be a place that throws parties, that values forgiveness and reconciliation above all else and urgently searches for the lost, that goes out and finds the lost and brings them home. We want to be like that, Jesus. Holy Spirit, only you can do that work inside of our hearts. So for those of us in this room who are open to that, just say, yes, I want that, Jesus. I want that, Jesus. Make me more like you. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If there's somebody in this room, maybe you've, you've come home and coming to church today might have been difficult for you. Maybe you've been far away from God and, and you need to experience the embrace of the Father. If that's you, would you raise your hand right now so I can pray with you? Just raise your hand if that's you in the room right now. Anybody in the room? Praise God. Jesus, I thank you for every person and for all these hearts. I pray that you would help continue to shape them and mold them into your image. And we love you, Jesus. In your name we pray and the church said, Amen. Amen.